This is Dr. Holly Lucille's Mindful Medicine. Here's Dr. Holly Lucille. Hey, 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 mindful listeners. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. Thanks for being here. It is an incredibly unprecedented time. And I know that there have been so many fears surrounding this pandemic that we're in. And I have got an incredible guest that's going to have some solutions for overcoming these, I would say, sometimes irrational fears. I want to introduce to you Dr. Roger Hall. He received his doctorate in psychology from The Ohio State University in 1991. He is the author of Staying Happy, Being Productive, The Big Ten Things Successful People Do. Dr. Hall, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Holly. So listen, I want to ask you something. Are you an Ohio State Buckeye fan? Yeah, my, my dad was a professor there. My sister is a professor there. I got all of my degrees there. So by law, I must be a fan. Yes. You know, I, I am as well. Um, I live in Los Angeles now. I, I was born in Ohio. And unfortunately, during the height of the uh, Ohio State uh, Buckeye-Michigan uh, Wolverine rivalry, we moved to Michigan. Mm-hmm. And my parents were big fanatics of the Ohio State Buckeyes. So... <laughs> My, my, my younger life was peppered with a lot of harassing from my parents' uh, fights and friends. They would uh, fly a huge Ohio State Buckeye flag in, you know, our Michigan neighborhood every Saturday for the Buckeye game. So <laughs> it is, it's definitely something um, when you are a Buckeye fan and you move to Michigan. So, but thank you for being here. So, Fear. Uh, it's a big thing going on right now. I, I see it in myself. I see it in my, my patients. I see it in my family members. And let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you ever hear those motivational speakers who say, you, you know, we're, we're going to help you live beyond fear? Um, that, that's, that's a ridiculously bad idea. You know, they're, they're those pickup trucks that have no fear on the back. And yeah. You ever notice how they're, they're always in the ditch? Um, fear, um, fear keeps us alive. You don't want to get rid of fear. Um, now there, there, the, the wonderful thing about fear is that it is, um, adapted to keep us alive. Our brains keep us alive. Um, the problem is worry. So worry is all, I mean, fear is always present tense. Fear will always help us stay alive. Worry is anticipatory fear. So what might I do? And so what, what I don't want people to think is that we need to get rid of fear, but anticipatory fear is the thing that is the most problematic. Yeah, and people are having a lot of anticipatory fear, um, mostly because I think of the unknown and also the fire hose of information, and I would say some misinformation that's um, available everywhere 24 hours a day. Yeah, um, there, there are two parts of that, one of which is, is it's uncertain. And anytime there's uncertainty, it increases our levels of anxiety. If you've ever gone to the dentist and you have dental phobia, by the time you're in the chair, you're pretty much resigned uh, that you're going to suffer the pain. It's the waiting room that's the problem because there, you know, there's still a chance for escape. And so what we know is that if you, if you, 
give somebody a, uh, an option of, do you want certain pain or uncertain pain? Uncertain pain creates greater anxiety than certain pain. So we have, we have all this unknown, and as a result, people, um, they're trying to control their environment. Um, fear and control are inextricably linked. Mm. Anytime I take my dog on a walk, I always take a leash. Why? Because I have a legitimate fear, knowing my dog, that he's going <laughs> to you know, see a squirrel and go, go run off. So anytime we have fear, we try to exert control. So as we see people um, having worry and fear, what we see is they're trying to control their environments, which is why people are buying toilet paper and people are buying you know, whatever they can to control um, any aspect. But when we can't control things, when things are outside of our control, we shift to information gathering. And your listeners in, in New York will know this, that if you're, if you're standing on the subway platform, there, there are two places that people look. One is at their phone and the other is down the track. And so people <laughs> will look down the track for five minutes in an attempt to get an eight second advantage over the people who are looking on their phones. So when we don't control things, like when the, when the train is coming, what happens is it increases you know, our level of anxiety. When's it gonna come, when's it gonna come, when's it gonna come? And it gives us very little uh, advantage. Um, an, another example of fear and information gathering is the Weather Channel. None of us control the weather. That's why the Weather Channel exists. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, I think a $385 million a year enterprise based on, <laughs> uh, on people, you know, trying to gather information when they're afraid. Um, this, and now the same is true here with the, with the coronavirus. Um, people can't control it. And so they seek information gathering and they turn on the news and the news, you know, for, for all of its advantages is designed to scare the heck out of us. Um, Nobody's going to watch the news if it's all good news. Um, and so, so it's, like, it's like slowing down to watch a car crash. That's why lots of people watch the news. And all of that just increases their level of anxiety. So we are definitely outlining some problems here because <clears throat> I hear what you're saying. I, I, I feel what you're saying because to be honest with you, I notice it in myself. Anytime I feel like I need more control, I obsessively clean. I will think about my menu planning. I, mm -hmm. you know, I know myself well enough. Now, thank goodness I've adapted to perhaps healthy habits like that. Uh, but I know that folks around me and trying to control the fear and the anxiety will start to medicate and do things that are not really great for us, like increasing, you know, that feel good, sugary, you know, refined carbohydrate foods, which give you that immediate release of, of uh, those good neurochemicals and increasing alcohol to numb some of it. And then that decreases our quality of sleep and we get into a slippery slope of just not being a well person. So before yes. we get into the solutions for this, yes. um, I want to talk about your junk drawer analogy. Give me a little bit of more insight into that because I think it's fascinating because everybody, everybody listening, I guarantee you has a junk drawer in the kitchen and mine, oh my gosh, it's my favorite. I love it. I love it. I love it. But talk about it so, uh, so in this context. That there are two things that, that, that connect together. The, the first is, is um, 
the junk drawer in your memory. Your, your memory is like the junk drawer in your kitchen. And if you don't have a junk drawer in your kitchen, give me a call. You know, we, we need to talk because, you know, you're, you're not balanced. Everybody has a junk drawer. And what we know about the junk drawer is what's on the top of your junk drawer, Holly. It, uh, I will tell you, it is an incense. Um, it's an incense that I just really adore and love to burn where I feel like I need a little calming. That's, that's what's on top because it's the last thing I used. Okay, exactly. So the last thing that you used or frequently or recently used items are in the top of your junk drawer. You have no idea what's in the back of your junk drawer because you haven't been there for two or three years. And that's exactly the way our memory works is the recently or frequently accessed items are on the top of our junk drawer of our memory. So they're easy to come to mind. Now, that's a psychologically, that's a principle called priming is that the most recent stuff, the most frequent stuff, comes to mind easiest. Now, the second piece is a thing called the availability heuristic. And if you've ever played slug bug, you know this. And in some areas of the country, they call it punch buggy. And for people (laughs) who lived a deprived childhood who never played slug bug or punch buggy, I'll explain the rules to you. As you're driving down the street with somebody in the car, the first person to see a Volkswagen Beetle gets to yell slug bug and then they name the color of the the beetle so it's slug bug blue and then they have the divine right to punch you as hard as they can yes. now have you ever played this game holly i'm from the midwest of course i have yes 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 so, okay so now what what slug bug has done is it has primed you to see volkswagen beetles because you're always, every time you see one, you flinch thinking, you know, I'm about to get punched. Now, if you've never played this game and you've lived a deprived childhood, any car that you drive, suddenly you see them everywhere. Or that car that you're currently lusting after, you see them everywhere. So we, it's easy to see them and we overestimate their frequency. And so... If you're primed for something, the availability heuristic tells us that if it's easy to bring to mind, it must be more common. So here we've got this this bad mix, which is information gathering about things that we fear. The news presents the information. It's constantly on the top of our mind. Therefore, we overestimate the frequency, the likelihood that a bad thing will happen with the coronavirus. Now, the coronavirus is, is, a, is an enormous problem, but we tend to overestimate its effect on us everywhere. I, I've talked to people who say, even when the quarantine orders are over, I'm not going out of my house. I'm happy the way it is. Um, that's, I mean, that's turning people into agoraphobics, which is not really a good idea. All right. So it is true. This is what's going on. You've hit the nail on the head many different times in this last couple, 10 minutes here. What can folks do? What are some of the solutions to actually, you know, get around this on a daily basis? Because I think that we need to start hearing about them and start implementing them in our daily, let's say, practice. Well, I, I think one of the easiest things to do is, is figure out what are you putting in your junk box or your junk drawer. Um, so every day, uh, the mental rehearsal of a daily gratitude. Um, I'll ask you another quick question. 
Sure. Uh, have you ever had food poisoning? I have. And do you remember what it was? I remember it was horrible. It was horrible. Okay. <laughs> Most people can remember exactly what the food was that they <laughs> ate that made them oh, yes. sick. Oh, absolutely. Yes, you, I remember. Yes. Oh, you remember the food. Okay. So I then do. I asked the... I asked the follow-up question, what did you have for dinner last Thursday? And most people have no idea. <laughs> and so here's the contrast, is really bad things are easier to bring to mind because our brain is designed to teach us to remember things that will kill us. But I almost guarantee you, your dinner last Thursday night was mildly positive. And most of our life is mildly positive. And the, the reason daily gratitude works is it puts on the top of the junk drawer of our memory mm. all of the mildly positive things that happen every day, which serves to counteract our brain's tendency to focus on what will kill us. Mm-hmm. Because so, we are pulled that way. I mean, it's just, it's almost addictive. We're pulled that way. I mean, this, and this is, I think, when you say daily gratitude, this is something that needs to be practiced. Like you oh, get absolutely. more reinforcement with each and every time you do it. Yes. And, and what I encourage people to do is don't, don't do lots of things. Do one thing, do five things, at the most five things. And what happens is if they get into the practice, they start out with the big things. Like I'm thankful for my family and I'm thankful for, you know, a democratic society and I'm, you know, all the big things. And then after about two weeks, then you say, I'm really thankful for, um, you know, the sunset and, and I'm, th I'm thankful for screens on my windows so bugs don't come in. And, and you start to really start noticing all of the tiny little things that make our lives really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So daily gratitude. What else? Well, I, I strongly recommend a, a media diet. Um, and again, I'm not telling people to, you know, turn off their televisions and turn off the internet and never watch it again. But I am encouraging them to limit how much they consume. Um, I gave up watching the news in 1994 when I was listening to NPR and the Rwandan genocide. And it made me feel horrible. And I said, I, I got to stop doing this. I got to stop putting this in my head. And I have now had, what is that, 25 years of not watching the news People say, well, how do you know anything? Well, well people tell me. Um, and, and so I've saved myself an hour a day for the last 25 years. Um, so I haven't time. lost much. It, it is a lot of time. And yeah. now that we have the internet, I probably spend eight minutes in the morning and eight minutes in the evening catching up on my news. So I've got about 15 minutes a day catching up on the news. And that's plenty. That's enough to find out what's happening. So I would encourage it to limit when and how much information you consume. Yeah, and once again, something that takes a little effort, probably takes a little practice, takes a little discipline, but it's something if you put into place and practice, you can actually look forward to it. You know you're gonna get your information and because you've been practicing your daily gratitude, you're gonna be able to probably process it a little bit more calm, calmer and, and also using your own mind. I mean, this is what my show is all about, right? Mindful medicine, mm -hmm. helping people use their own mind, especially when the onslaught of information is out there. And then what about the types of information people are getting? Well, how, how can folks, you know, 
navigate around that because, oh my gosh, what I have seen shaking my head, I got to tell you. Uh, you know, I, I, I work pretty hard to every day when I do my little check-in to, to get news from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And so um, if, if I, I, I get one perspective and then I read about the same story from a different editorial perspective, and I know somewhere in there, there is an element of truth somewhere in there. But I want to make sure I don't just feed my, you know, already intact biases. I want to hear how other people think. And then I look, especially if you're looking for information about the virus, um, if people have a financial interest in you landing on their site or watching their show, um, my guess is it's likely to be far more dramatic than people who are not financially invested in you jumping on their site. Um, because fear, you know, the old, the old news adage is if it bleeds, it leads. Fear yeah. sells far more than good news. Yeah. All right. So daily gratitude, media diet. I, you know, it's funny. I love that. You know, when I, I wanted to know what diet actually meant like what the origin of the word diet was. And I went to yeah. look it up in the dictionary because, because I, was, I was actually giving a presentation and I, I really got curious about it. And you know what it means? It means habitual nourishment. How do, you, mm. how do you habitually nourish yourself on a daily basis, right? With food and drink, with that diet. But that, ever since I, I learned that, I've always looked at diet in a different way. And I think with this media diet, maybe it would apply here as well. It's like, you know, can you open your mind and, and, and with that media diet, um, be able to nourish yourself instead of, uh, reinvigorating the fear, as you say, and doing with the good sources of information that you can decipher, you know, what you can, uh, think about what you can live with, how you can navigate this, um, versus just, getting more and more information that puts you in this fear state that gets a slippery slope into all the things we talked about at the top of the show. And, and I, I think you've made a great point in the way you've defined diet, which is monitoring how it makes you feel. If you eat something and it makes you feel bad, then you stop eating it. And I think monitor, the same is true for media, monitoring how it makes you feel and then stop, stop doing that. So then the basics, you talk about sleep, exercise, good nutrition, faith, and a long-term perspective. Can we talk a little bit about those? Absolutely. Um, We are an underslept society. Um, About 20 years ago, I read a book called The Promise of Sleep uh, by William DeMent. And it was one of those books that frightened me so much I went to bed. You know, it's not not one of those books that kept me up all night. It it frightened me into going to sleep. Um, And it is a cornerstone habit getting, you know, and your mom was right. You know, as an adult, you need about eight hours of sleep. And most of us think that we can power through with four or six or less. Um, but sleep is the time that your brain essentially um, contracts and expands a little bit to, to move the cerebrospinal fluid in and out to kind of wash the brain and get all of the, the cells and the gunk that built up over the day out. And that happens while we're asleep. And so, so we need sleep in order to 
clean out the cerebrospinal fluid so our brain can be in a healthy environment. The second thing I recommend is exercise. When, when people exercise, the, 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 the least expensive way to improve your mood with no side effects is to get daily physical activity. And I don't really care what it is. If you're out walking your dog, if you're playing racquetball, if you're working on the elliptical, if you're out gardening, I really don't care what it is as long as you're, you're moving your body every day. Mm -hmm. And we, yes. we know that uh, physical activity improves mood um, as reliably as anything else. It's, it's absolutely free and there are no, no negative side effects. The next one is good nutrition. The United States is an overfed nation with food scarce or nutrition scarce foods. We do not have nutrition dense foods. And unlike you, uh, Dr. Holly, I am not a nutrition expert, but I know that we eat a lot of things that are not good for us. And where do our neurotransmitters come from? The things that, you know, serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, where do those come from? Well, they come from the foods we eat. They don't, they don't just come in bottles that you get your, from your physician. And so the, the building blocks of those neurotransmitters that help us feel good and regulate our thinking, regulate our mood, come in good nutrition. So I strongly recommend that your listeners spend time learning about nutrition and finding people who are smarter than me about nutrition to, to fill up your body with the right chemistry. Yeah, I love it. Um, and then faith. I'm not evangelizing for any particular faith, but the research is very clear that the, there are tremendous benefits of being part of an organized religious tradition. Um, we, we see the personal benefits in terms of recovery from illness, social support, um, uh, longevity. There's all kinds of things. And, you know, it's an open question. Is it being part of the community or is it being part of the religious community? And I think that's, that's a great research question. But as of, as of now, it appears that faith is an important part. I'm going to st stumble on this faith thing for a second because I was on a webinar trying to help some of my colleagues that um, have practices that are needing to pivot to virtual and giving them mm -hmm. some resources and assistance. And when we talk about faith, you know, a long time ago I was going through Ah, difficult time in my life. And somebody said, well, just have faith. And I, I kind of got angry because <laughs> I'm like, well, what the heck does that mean? Like, just have it? Like, and so what I learned though in my later years now is that I have earned faith. And what I try to tell people about that, and this is kind of faith uh, tipping it on its head outside of a religious capacity, is that think about a time when you were struggling, when you were gripped with fear. Um, when you had a breakup or a loss of a loved one or a job or a huge change that didn't feel very great. And then look where you are now, right? So I remind people that they've actually earned faith and that they can tap into that again in their own life. And that's what's really important, I think, too, at this time. We're going to get out of this. We're going to get through this. We've done it before and perhaps the test is just patience. And I think that's where you're going with this long-term perspective. Yeah, long-term perspective. Um, uh, I, I hear people making prognostications that, you know, we're never going to go to large events again and we're never going to 
um, be within six feet of people again in the future. And you know, I scratch my head and think, well, you clearly are not a very keen observer of the human species. We are pack animals. We like to be around people, and especially touching other people. You know, um, one of the one of the hormones, um, oxytocin, which is the the hormone that that um, women get when they're giving birth. They they get a an incredible dump of oxytocin, and that helps them to connect to their baby. Um, it is the connection hormone, and we get that. Every one of us gets that every time we touch another person. So if we're shaking hands, if we're giving somebody a hug, all of that increases our sense of attachment to other people. And I don't think we're going to change human biology uh, because of a crisis like we're having now. Uh, so I encourage people to think long term. Um, the, the, the pandemic uh, of the Spanish influenza from 1917, 1918, I'm sure at that time they had people prognosticating that people would never ever again get together. Well, guess what? You know, we, we all forgot about it. Um, and pe- people will return to um, interacting with one another and not being afraid of one another. Now that's going to take time, and for many of us, it'll take a lot of self-discipline to think, okay, we are going to get back uh, to normal. It's easy in the immediate to think it'll never get better. You know, if if you were in East Berlin in 1981, it looked like it was never going to change. And then, lo and behold, 10 years later, the wall came down, and it's all different. Um, So it's, let's look at not, not, two months or six months, look at, let's look at decades and see what's going to happen. And I, and I think you'll be pleased to see that things are going to be good. Um, one of two of my favorite books right now are um, Abundance, The Future is Better Than You Think, and another book called The Rational Optimist. And these two authors of these books argue that, you know, it really is getting better. Our world is getting better. And it's, there, there's a lot to to hope for. So I encourage people to, to, to fill their heads with those kinds of hopeful information. Dr. Roger Hall, thank you so much. Okay, folks, just for a little bit of a recap, daily gratitude, media diet, make sure you screen your sources and definitely get back to the basics, good nutrition, move around, exercise, sleep, have that faith. You've earned it in a long-term perspective. You can learn more about Dr. Roger Hall at drrogerhall.com. And remember his book, Staying Happy, Being Productive. We'll see you next time.